prologue. Catherine Lyon wasn't sure if she'd heard her son scream or if she'd dreamed it. There it was again. It was her son and he was screaming. She grabbed her robe, raced to the door and threw it open. The first traces of pink reflected off the snow-covered mountaintops and filtered into the courtyard. Dawn was about to break. She ran across the second-story balcony toward the men's quarters. Once again, she cursed the fact that they were separated. But Eric was 13 now, and segregation in the compound was expected. Then there was the other matter, the growing number of devotees who insisted upon calling him Master, or in some cases, God. Somehow it didn't seem fitting for God to continue rooming with his mother. The two of them had been on their own for eleven years now. The first seven, after her husband was shot in the line of duty. The rest, after Michael Coleman had laid down his life for them, but not before accidentally infecting Eric with a special DNA. A DNA that many believed to come from the blood of Christ. Catherine passed two young women. As disciples, their joy was to serve Eric and the cartel and they did so with unwavering devotion. Even now they carried plates of rice and flowers as an offering that would soon find its way outside Eric's quarters. Initially, she and Eric had tried to shun the adoration, but their attempts were only mistaken as humility which only offered more proof of his godhead. This, along with his insight into other people's thoughts, continued to deepen his followers' reverence. Catherine reached the men's section. She rounded the corner and nearly ran into an armed guard stationed outside Eric's door. He was military, but not from Nepal. No surprise there. More and more countries were offering their services in order to court the cartel's favor. What do you want? He was obviously unnerved from the screaming inside. I am the boy's mother. She started for the door, but he blocked her path. My son is having a nightmare. If you don't let me in, you may bring his displeasure upon you. And I'm sure neither of us wants that, do we? It was a ploy she'd used more and more often. And, given Eric's recent outbursts of anger, it usually worked. Changes were happening with her son, just as they had with Michael Coleman. Although Eric's supernatural powers continued to grow, the tender mercy and compassion he'd once exhibited had begun to die. There was another scream. Catherine's gaze remained fixed on the guard. She would not back down. He shifted again, glancing around the courtyard, obviously hoping for someone to rescue him. But there was only Catherine. He took another breath and finally nodded and stepped aside. Catherine brushed past him and threw open the door. There, writhing and tossing in the giant four-poster bed, was Eric. Catherine raced to him, scooping him into her arms. He was still asleep and whimpered slightly until she began to rock him. Instinctively, he wrapped his arms around her, clinging to her as he had when he was a baby. Emotion rose deep within Catherine, tightening her throat and making it ache. Despite his outbursts, despite the embarrassments he caused, he was her son. He would always be her son. She kissed the top of his head. Was it Halo? she whispered. Did he show you something scary again? Eric gave no response, but turned his head and continued to cling. Catherine had her answer. Originally, she had been wary of Halo's appearances to her son. But after listening to half a dozen experts on the subject, who insisted Eric was communicating with his guardian angel or a spirit guide, and after reading another dozen books extolling the benefits of such communication, Catherine had begun to relax. A little. Halel was careful never to reveal his exact identity. 
but everyone was positive that Halel was good. The books, the counselors, the specialists Catherine had insisted be flown in to examine him, the cartel, everyone except Catherine. Because despite the overwhelming evidence, she still found something unsettling about the times Eric would give up control of his voice and become a channel for this entity to speak through. Still, Halo was always courteous, never abusive, and he always offered brilliant counsel. A counsel that the cartel had grown more and more dependent upon. A counsel that this semi-secret organization of international bankers, politicians, and world leaders was using for the betterment of all. Catherine pushed back her son's damp hair and kissed him on the forehead. Come, stay with me, just for a while. She was pleased Eric didn't resist as they headed for the door. God or no God, this frightened boy was going to spend the rest of the early morning hours with his mother. Brandon bolted up in bed. He sat there for several seconds, waiting for the last of the nightmare to fade. It was always the same one, the one where he stood before the altar of his father's church, confronting a giant serpent head. As always, the vapor specter had floated above the aisle, just a few feet before him. As always, it had opened its tremendous mouth in preparation to devour him. And, as always, Brandon stood terrified, staring helplessly into its throat, seeing a whirling vortex of human faces screaming in agony, spiraling down into an endless abyss. The nightmare didn't come often, but when it did, it always left him cold and shaken. The reason was simple. It was identical to the confrontation he had actually had in his father's church over a year ago. The encounter had taken his father's life, and it had nearly destroyed his own. But tonight, tonight there had been a difference. As he clung to the altar, he had noticed some sort of crescent moon and five-pointed star carved into the wood. The image seemed vaguely familiar, but he couldn't place it. He wouldn't be able to go back to sleep, he was certain of that. He snapped on the light and sat on the edge of the bed. Scattered on the floor were the remains of yesterday's newspaper. There were the usual headlines about the recent crash of the Tokyo Stock Exchange and fears that Wall Street and Nasdaq were following. Another article spoke on the masses of people starving from the drought. There was also something about the rapid spread of a new virus they nicknamed Scorpion. The latest estimates were that 1.3 million of the world's Semite population, mostly Jews and Arabs, were already infected, and it was going to get a lot worse before it got better. Finally, there was another article on the progress Lucas Ponte and the cartel were making toward world peace. But yesterday's headlines were of little interest to Brandon. His eyes were drawn to a pile of sketches on the dresser across the room. Sketches made by Gertie Morrison before she died. No one had taken the old woman seriously when she lived, but the prophecies she had given regarding Brandon and Dr. Sarah Weintraub had proven eerily correct, down to the tiniest detail. Still, the past prophecies were nothing compared to the ones she claimed were yet to be fulfilled. The ones insisting that both he and Sarah were the two end-time prophets mentioned in the Bible. Of course, it took more than one woman's predictions to get them to take such a claim seriously, no matter how accurate those predictions had proven in the past, and God seemed only too happy to oblige with further evidence, such as the words of other so-called prophets spoken over his mother when she was pregnant with him, and the demoniacs who always screamed whenever he or Sarah entered their presence, and the results of the paranormal tests Sarah had run on him when they'd first met. 
There was, however, one further piece of evidence, perhaps stronger than all the others combined, the emergence of Brandon's own prophetic gifts, and, just as importantly, his newfound ability to heal the sick. If God was trying to make a point, he'd certainly gone out of his way to do so. Yet, at the same time, he was frustratingly silent when it came to any details on the how or the when. Brandon rose from the bed and shuffled toward the pile of sketches. Many of them were detailed drawings Gertie had made of him at pivotal moments in his childhood. The fact that she had never seen him during this time made them even more compelling. But the last sketch was the one he and Sarah had found the most unsettling. It was a sketch that featured both of them together. Their hair was cut short, and they stood in an ancient walled city. And hovering directly in front of them was the vaporous snakehead of his dream. It was poised to devour them. But equally disquieting was that the serpent was held at bay by what looked like flames of fire, flames of fire spewing from Brandon's mouth. Brandon stared at the sketch before setting it back down. Then, taking a deep breath, he headed back to bed. He shut off the light and stared up at the ceiling. It was doubtful he'd be able to sleep, but he needed to try. After all, today was going to be a busy day. Today, in just eleven hours and seventeen minutes, he and Dr. Sarah Weintraub were to become husband and wife. Sarah, your veil, it's all... Here, let me straighten it. Dr. Sarah Weintraub obeyed and leaned forward. She stood just outside the sanctuary doors as the wedding coordinator flittered about making last-minute adjustments. Some thought the wedding came too quickly. Others were sure it wouldn't last. Brandon was four years her junior, and many were certain that the couple was asking for marital disaster. But that didn't bother Brandon, and it certainly didn't bother her. In fact, Sarah found him less self-absorbed.